We are for the church and for the kingdom. This vision drives everything we do. There are many noble causes and institutions in this world, and we care about the future of seminaries, academies, governments, social causes, and parachurch ministries, but they are not fundamentally why we exist. We exist for the future of the church and the advancement of God's kingdom. With God's help, our students today will be the pastors, ministers, and missionaries of the global church tomorrow. We teach the Bible in the classroom so that generations of churches will be sturdy outposts of Christ's kingdom. This is how we serve the church, and this is how we bless every other good and noble endeavor until God's glory covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. Will you join us? Well, good morning at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. How are you feeling today? Feeling good? Come on, I got a woo up here, my man. I told Charles after he's done with the opening prayer, he had to be the hype guy in the front row. Excited, thankful for him. What a joy it is to be with you today. It really is. I love the diversity at Midwestern. You've got uh, faculty in full suits, and you got our brother back here on the guitar in the Canadian tuxedo. It is amazing, my guy, my guy. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to open it with me to the book of John chapter 4, verses 27 through 42 will be our focus today. This week is the first annual church planning summit here at MBTS, and I'd like to express what an honor it truly is to be able to be part of kicking this off. By God's grace, our family of churches called the Send Network, a part of the Southern Baptist Convention, we have planted over 10,000 new churches since 2010 all over North America. That is our family of churches, 10,000 on this continent. And we believe God is calling us to more. So that's why at Send Network, we say that our mission is to be a family of churches Planting churches everywhere for everyone in order to see God's kingdom expanded by at least 1% in North America over the next 10 years. That's roughly 2.8 million new believers. That's the goal. And we are convinced that calling and equipping the local church to multiply disciples and multiply churches is the mechanism. At MBTS, you know this very well, the clarion call is for the church. And the hope of Send Network is that every church's clarion call would be for the kingdom, that we would see God's kingdom established in North America as it is in heaven. Amen? Well, just last month, I was in a prayer meeting with church planning leaders from across North America. These are the guys that have written books that all of us have on our shelves. Matt Carter, who is speaking tomorrow, he was there this this meeting as well. And in the first few minutes, you've probably been in something like this. Heads are bowed, bowed, eyes are closed. The room is still quiet. It's those first moments where you feel like you're just getting warmed up to start praying together. And Vance Pittman, the president of Send Network, he said this. You see, he's no rookie. He knew what he was, was doing. He knew what was happening. He said this. It is so easy for us to be like the disciples in the garden who Jesus asked to pray, to lean back and to fall asleep. So lean in, do the hard work of prayer. And man, what a challenge. I don't know about you, but I grew up in the church, and so even as an unbeliever until the age of 17, I had heard sermon after sermon, and I had sat in hours and hours of Sunday school. I knew the answers to all the questions better than all the saved kids in the youth group. So when I would read stories about the disciples doing the wrong thing, or saying the wrong thing, 
putting their foot in their mouth or asking Jesus for something outlandish like being called the COO in the kingdom of heaven, I would scoff. What a bunch of idiots those disciples were. And then Jesus saved me at a church camp in rural southern Illinois in the year 2000. And as a zealous new believer, I went away to play football at a liberal Methodist college just outside St. Louis. Now, when I say liberal, I mean liberal. I still remember the intro to Christianity class I took as a freshman. The professor had written the book we used, and here were the four sections of the course. Four main sections were this. Number one, God and cosmology, how God did not create the earth. Second, heaven, hell, and anthropology, why hell wasn't real. Thirdly, feminism and the church, which had a picture of naked female Jesus as the cover art for that chapter in the book. And finally, homosexuality in the church. This was the same professor who did a lunch lecture my first semester called Out of the Closet and Into the Church, where he went on to explain why homosexuality should no longer be considered a sin and gay Methodist pastors should be allowed to live loud and proud about their sexual orientation. So I'm a freshman. Something had to be done, right? And so I deemed myself the defender of the faith at McKendree College, and I stood up in lunch lectures, and I attended debates and called out tenured professors. I started a column in the school newspaper called, catch this, fundamentalism is not the F word. It's catchy, right? It's catchy. (laughs) Because that was their favorite moniker for anybody who believed the Bible was actually true. I scheduled a, a meeting with the Christian studies chair, my professor, And I said, well, I'm going to do all the work to ace your class. I will never take another course with you again. He said, why? I said, oh, because Psalm 1 says not to sit in the seat of scoffers, and you, sir, are a scoffer. I said it. True story. True story. I was bold and zealous and had a crew of friends that were living this life with me. In fact, four of us decided to room together in order to spur one another on towards deeper godliness and more and more affection for the Lord. We would even have regular morning prayer meetings. We get up before football practice, like 5.30 a.m. to pray. We turn our couches into altars and get on our knees before the Lord and intercede for one another on our campus and our own hearts. But friends, that's where the heroic descriptions end. Because for far too many mornings, the first guy would get done praying and it was time for someone else to pick up where he left off, and there'd be this prolonged silence. Hello? Bro, did you fall asleep again? And we all had, we had all fallen asleep right there on our knees before the Lord. So in that prayer meeting a month ago when Vance said, it's so easy to be like the disciples in Gethsemane and lean back and fall asleep, I was like, I know, I've been that guy, literally. And in that moment, because I was preparing for this message already, I felt the Lord speak to my heart. Listen, it is also so very easy for us, for me, to be like the disciples in John chapter 4, who were busy doing the peripherals of ministry that we might miss the thing that God is up to right in front of us. So Jesus tells them, both the disciples in Gethsemane and the disciples in John chapter 4, he says, open your eyes. Wake up, lift up your eyes, look and see, lean into what God is up to. Can I humbly submit to you today that I believe that many of us in this room, we are in need of this text this morning. We need again and again what Paul prays in Ephesians 1, 17 and 18, when he says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give us 
the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened. So as we open his word this morning, would you pray with me that I would honor the Lord in the teaching of his word, but also pray for yourself that your eyes would be open to see all that God has for you. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful to be your kingdom citizens, to be a part of this day in this amazing institution. Lord, would you continue to have your hand upon Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary? God, I pray this morning that you would open our eyes as we open the word where we'd be saying to you that, God, we want to know you, and God, we need to know you, so show yourself to us. We want to hear your voice through your word that we might be different and our lives might be changed. Holy Spirit, as you've breathed out this word, would you breathe it into our hearts this morning? In Christ's strong name we pray, amen. John chapter four, let me set the stage leading up to our text this morning. Jesus on his journey from Judea to Galilee, he passes through Samaria. He stops at a well in the Samaritan city of Sychar where his disciples go into the city to buy food. A Samaritan woman comes to draw water from the well and Jesus asks her for a drink. The interaction surprises the woman as Jews typically avoided contact with Samaritans. This leads to a conversation, and in it, Jesus reveals his knowledge of the woman's personal life, including past marriages and her current living situation. This prompts the woman to recognize Jesus as a prophet. We know because she says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. That is a clue in the text for those of you who are studying Bible right now. These, uh, they, they end up discussing matters of worship and the differences between Samaritan and Jewish religious practices, and then Jesus prophesies about a day coming where things are going to change forever. And in doing so, he reveals that his identity is none other than the Messiah. He tells this woman, which astounds her. We pick up the action in John 4, verse 27. It says this, Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food that, to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months? Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is gathering, is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. What I want us to see today in our text and our application of it is this, three prayers of desperation that we, that every believer should pray from John 4, 27 through 42. Three prayers of desperation that every believer can and should pray from John 4, 27 through 42. 
Let's get going. From the get-go, what I want us to notice here is that this whole interaction happens and no one is around to see it. Not another person. Verse 8 tells us that the disciples had gone into town. It's just Jesus and this woman at the well in the middle of the day. But God, he causes this story, this happening, to be written down in Scripture and to be taught and preached over and over for generations and generations. But apart from the miraculous superintending work of the Holy Spirit to breathe this out through John, it's just another one of the situations that John wrote about in the very last verse of his gospel when he said, now there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Here's the point. Jesus is still doing many other things. And most of them, you nor I will ever hear about them. Right now, all throughout Kansas City, God is sovereignly orchestrating his purposes. And I know right now that Kansas City is a pretty big deal, right? Home of the two-time back-to-back world champion Kansas City Chiefs. Anybody a fan? Okay, okay. But listen, Kansas City is just a blip on the radar of all that God is doing across the globe right now and will do in the days to come. God is leading his people by his spirit for divine appointments with those whom he has marked to inherit salvation. Friends, this means there are no ordinary days and there are no ordinary situations. This story was the equivalent of running into somebody at the coffee shop or running into someone who's come downtown to pay their water bill. And in a moment, in one conversation, not only is this woman's life changed, but her whole city's difference. Because Jesus moved. So here's prayer number one. Open our eyes, Lord. We know you're at work even when we don't see it. Just whisper that prayer to the Lord right now. Open our eyes, Lord. We know you're at work even when we don't see it. What if we prayed in desperation? Lord, open our eyes that we might see the work you're doing all around us. What might be different? What might we step into? What might we get to be a part of? So the disciples get back from town. They see him talking to this woman. And the text says they marveled at it, but no one asked his purpose. They tried to get him to eat, but when he refused, they didn't understand his point. So what is the purpose and what was the point? Well, why were they in town to get food? It's because they're on a mission trip, right? Ever read this? Read this in the context of you and your college buddies going on a mission trip and you stopped at a rest stop and one dude's like, I'm too tired to even go in and get some Cheetos, all right? I'm gonna pump the gas. And all of a sudden, it's different, right? It it takes it down from this spiritual realm to like, this is ordinary daily life. They're on a mission trip, but more than that, they've adopted what we might like to call the missional lifestyle, right? Or even more than that, they are living a lifestyle that puts the book radical to shame. All right, David Platt knows nothing of this. All right, they're following the literal Jesus around the literal Holy Land, making literal disciples of the Messiah. Jesus had worked a miracle in Cana. They, they head down to Jerusalem for Passover, and Jesus cleanses the temple, and he's working miracles, and crowds are starting to form. Jesus is becoming a celebrity. Folks are coming out of the wilderness to be baptized. Even Pharisees, the religious rulers of the day, they come to speak with him and to ask questions from him. And the disciples have joined his team. 
They put down work and they've stepped away from family. Any comfort, gone. Any hobbies, they're put away. These men have entered the full-time vocational ministry. And what does that mean? It means they have to run in to get lunch because Chick-fil-A doesn't deliver to Sychar yet. For anyone here at seminary that still has stars in their eyes about the glories of ministry, this one's free. Ministry has a million moments of minutia. Ministry has a million moments of minutia. You know what I was doing on the five-year anniversary of our church plant? Not being celebrated, not throwing a party, not taking Instagram-worthy photos. I was outside with my shoes off and my jeans rolled up in the window wells of our 100-year-old building, unclogging drains so our kids' area didn't flood. That's the glorious good news about being called into the mission of God. It's his glory and not ours. Someone has to do it, just like the disciples getting lunch. So when they get back and they aren't exactly tuned into what's going on right in front of them, Jesus says that they need to, at least in this moment, lift up their eyes from what they're currently looking at to something bigger, something of a more important reality. Why were they in town to get food? Because they're on a journey back from Galilee. And why were they on a journey back from Galilee or to Galilee? Because they were following Jesus and he had gone to celebrate Passover. Why are they following Jesus? Because Jesus told them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Friends, it was always about people. The point was people. Jesus came to proclaim the kingdom of God to and fish for people. Now let me ask you, why are you here? Those of you who are seminary students, why are you here right now? Surely it's because you have a calling from God on your life. In 2006, God called me to plant a church in the urban core of St. Louis. And I was convinced, I was convicted deep within my soul that in order to do that, to reach the people that God was calling me to reach, I needed seminary education. And so every day and every week filled with lectures and papers and online discussion boards meant I had a choice. Will this be an end unto itself? Was seminary for seminary or was it for something else? And those of you who are already in ministry, what's the purpose? Surely it's to join in God's kingdom activity of reconciling people to right relationship with himself and empowering and equipping his people to do the same, right? But if you're in ministry very long, you know the specific temptation to make ministry an end unto itself. Sunday is for Sunday instead of the rest of the week. We're managing members. We're thinking about growth, about filling ministries we've already started and accomplishing budgets we've already planned for. We find ourselves not able to do those things, the things to which we were called and why we said yes to God's kingdom assignment because we're focused on all these things right in front of us. Look what happens here. The disciples are doing a good thing. They're doing a necessary thing. It's time to eat, and the text says Jesus is weary. So they let him rest, and they go get food. Now when they come back, taking the next logical step, ignoring the woman and what must have gone down while they were gone, they say, Rabbi, it's time to eat. Let's get your energy up. Let's get your blood sugar up. Let's get some food in your system so we can get back to doing that which the Father has sent you to do. And look at what Jesus says. I have food to eat that you do not know about. And I bet they're like, wait, did Jesus use DoorDash while we were gone? 
Was that who that woman was? Was she the Uber Eats driver? Okay, it makes sense. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, listen, and to accomplish his work. What's he saying? Jesus is saying, no, I am still just as hungry for food as I was before you left. Hungrier still. There is something I have an even deeper hunger for, to do the will of the Father and to accomplish, to finish his work. You know what that word is there for accomplish in the original text, the original language? It's the, another form of the same word that Jesus used on the cross when he declared, it is finished. Here's what Jesus is saying. He had his eyes firmly fixed on his clear gospel call from the day that he was sent until he breathed his last. He had one desire that trumped all others. So here's prayer number two. Open our eyes, Lord. It's so easy to miss your mission because of our ministry. Open our eyes, Lord. It's so easy to miss your mission because of our ministry. Now the woman had run into town to spread the word about Jesus, and the townspeople are already on their way out. Now Jesus turns to address the situation more directly, this thing that he has called them into, and to help them see a bigger point. He references what is probably a rural proverb, or he makes a reference to farming calendars. You see, though the planting season usually takes about six months roughly, if you measure from the end of sowing to the beginning of reaping, it's roughly four months. So as a farmer, once the work is done, you wait. And then you work some more, and then you wait. And then you work some more, and then you wait. And he's saying, the work that I've come to do, the Father's work that I've come to finish, it's not like that. It's not work and wait. It's urgent and immediate. It's work and work. It's sow and reap at the same time, Jesus says. In fact, he says, don't think of yourself as the lone sowers. God, through his people and through his prophets, has been sowing seeds of the gospel from the very beginning. So the sowing that you're doing now, he says, it's just a continuation. It's a fulfillment of what they've already done. And the fruit that you've already seen, that labor wasn't yours alone. And the labor, the fruit you're about to see today it's not your labor at all. God the Father has called you into an ongoing labor to join in what God is already doing to give your lives and give their lives they will for God's cosmic plan of redemption. He tells them they aren't the only laborers, but they're invited to labor. And as laborers, they will get to rejoice and share in the reward that God gives to everyone who does. And as he says it, lift up your eyes. Jesus uses the phrase with a double meaning. Jesus was calling them to see the bigger picture, the full picture of what God was up to in and through them. And at the same time, as they literally shift their gaze from this conversation to the horizon, they see them. They see the people, the many who believe because of the woman's testimony and the many more who will believe because of the word of Christ over the next couple of days. And so here's the third prayer. Open our eyes, Lord. We desperately want us to step into your ongoing, joy-filled kingdom work. Open our eyes, Lord. We desperately want to step into your ongoing, joy-filled kingdom work. Is that the cry of your heart this morning? 
I pray that it is. That if you feel like in life right now, you're in a holding pattern. You're in a, a step that has to lead to more before you step into more or all that God has for you. That this morning, there will be this growing cry within your heart that says, God, I long to step into this joy-filled kingdom work that you have called me, set me apart for. But I want you to know, you don't have to wait. We have segmented things so much in modern Christianity that we think that we got to wait to do the stuff. But God wants you to do the stuff the entire time. He's growing you and developing you. In fact, that's how you grow and develop faster. By exercising the call that God has for you now and watching it grow as others speak into it. I remember when God first called me, I wanted to build something. I wanted to start something. Honestly, I had a pretty intense experience with God when he called me. And so I had this thought that I wouldn't be stepping into anything that people might consider ordinary Christian ministry. Honestly, I had this image in my mind where I was going to be a traveling like prophet evangelist. I'd travel church to church and college campus to college campus, and I would, I would declare God's word and spar with the, the scary campus atheist, and I would stir up God's people who were settled into their pews, and they would take up a love offering, and off I would ride into the sunset, and the pastors would have to clean up the mess that I made, right? Everybody getting saved for the third time, that, that sort of thing, you know? I thought God wanted me to be a trailblazer and a pioneer, and then God called me to my home church where I had been saved to follow in the footsteps of the man who had discipled me in high school. And then God called me to plant a church and to train as a church planting resident under the guy who discipled me in college. And then God called me to plant a church in St. Louis in a city where other like-minded churches have been laboring for years, some decades. And then God called me to join a denomination, the SBC of all denominations, right? I grew up as a spiritual mutt at a church in the country. We were Baptist. Anybody know what that, that refers to? Right? General Baptist by denomination, charismatic by practice, always rumors of handling snakes, and I never saw one in the church my entire life. Right? You guys know the kind. Right? And God called me to join the SBC, a family of churches who had been active in sowing and reaping of the gospel, even in my hometown, long before I was even thought of, as my grandma used to say. Right? And what I realized was this. First, God wasn't calling me or anyone else to build something for him. Jesus said, follow me and I will build my church. Second, God wasn't calling me to do anything new. In fact, he was calling me into the same thing he's calling you into. He continues to call all of us into again and again, his ongoing joy-filled kingdom work. So many times in my life, I've made it more complicated than it needs to be. So many times I've been like the disciples, not in their best moments, but in their worst and it's in those moments that I need these words from Jesus. Open your eyes. The fields are ready. In fact, the work has already been done. I'm just waiting for you to jump in and join the party. So what do we do? What do we need? How do we join in the work that God is already up to? Well, I believe there are distinctly three needs in this moment of the church and in every moment of the church, let me put them in front of you one by one. Number one, I believe according to Luke 10, 2, we need more harvesters. We need more harvesters. We don't need more professional Christians. We need harvesters. 
Harvesters submit to the Lord. Harvesters live sent. Harvesters work. They do the work of an evangelist. They do gospel work. Are you a harvester? Is God calling you to be a harvester? Secondly, according to Jude 3, I believe that we need contenders. Not only do we need harvesters, we need contenders. We don't need more churches. We need more churches who will contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We need to be churches that will be disciples of Jesus and make more disciples of Jesus who grow to know, love, and follow Jesus together by his grace. We need those who will hold on to scripture in a changing culture no matter what comes. Will you be a contender? And then thirdly, according to 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 3, I believe that we need prayers, people of prayer. 2 Thessalonians Paul says, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and win the race. We need the Annas and the Simeons. We need the Hannas and the Davids. We need those people who will take Jesus at his word and believe Jesus when he said in Luke 10 to the first step before we go into the harvest is that we pray to the Lord of the harvest and people that will grab a hold of him in prayer and will not let go. We need to be those people of prayer. Will you be a person of kingdom-focused prayer? I'd like to invite the worship team back up as we close our time with several minutes of prayer. So they're going to come up and set a little bit of uh, kind of background for us. At Send Network, one of our values is deepen devotion. Vance Pittman, the president of Send Network, says in the next few years, he wants you to be able, no matter where you go in North America, if you step into a Send Network church, no matter their methodology, their style, their culture, whether uh, their business up front or party in the back, either way, or they're a church mullet, no matter what, they'll be known for two things. They preach the word and they pray. And what that means is we have to do a lot more practice in preaching the word and prayer. And so you've heard the word this morning. Now we're going to take some time to pray together, to really lean into the hard work of prayer. So I'm going to invite you to get comfortable. You may need to get some stuff out of your lap. You may need to get a little space I need to get in a posture where you can lean into the work of prayer. But at Send Network, we call it spirit-led, scripture-fed, worship-based prayer. Meaning that we want to use a text of scripture and, and set it as a centerpiece in a conversation that we have with God. That flows out of worship and is accompanied with worship, but is led by the spirit as God's people pray together. You know, growing up in a charismatic church, um, I saw some of the excesses of corporate stuff done together, right? I saw the emotion that would come. I mean, I grew up seeing people get prayed for and knocked over, barking like a dog over in the right corner. I saw it all. And I, I, don't, want, I don't want to be a part of that. And what it led me to do is most of my prayer, most of my spiritual disciplines became solo acts. And God has not called us to pray only by ourselves. Jesus said, yeah, when you pray, get in that room that you have designated. But you know, the first thing that the early church did, they understood Jesus to mean, is they got together in the prayer closet and prayed. And that word doesn't even mean closet. It means room designated for that. Well, like a pantry. And this morning, we're going to make this room our prayer pantry. We're going to pray together. Not to be seen by men, but to be heard by our Father. And we're going to take a text of Scripture, Luke 10, 1 through 3, and we're going to pray. I want to lead us through three specific prayer prompts. Go ahead, Dr. Matt. 
I want to invite you to just close your eyes, and I'm going to invite you to do something maybe you're not super comfortable in this first prayer prompt. Luke 10.1 says this, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. I want us to focus right there on that phrase. The Lord of the harvest. And just as we begin and we enter into this moment of prayer, I'm going to invite us to worship God for who he is. Before we ask him to do the things we want him to do, we want to celebrate who he is and what he's done. So I'm going to invite you all across this room as you feel led to just declare a quick sentence. I worship you because you are, and then fill in the blank with one of the titles of God. It doesn't matter if two or three people do it at the same time. And when you hear someone pray that, when you hear someone say that, whether it's a whisper next to you or someone yelling across the room, I want you to lean into that and worship as well. So for instance, if I say, Lord, I worship you because you are the Lord of the harvest, then you begin to take that idea and you worship the Lord because he is, and you've seen him do it and you want him to do it again. So together, let's be brave. Let's pray together. Somebody... Worship the Lord for who he is. What's the name of God you want to declare in front of this room? Worship you for your holy. God, we worship you because you are holy. Just tell him that he's holy. Worship him in this moment for his holiness. There's none like you, God. You are holy and set apart. What's another one? We worship God because he's what? God, we worship you because you're the great shepherd of the sheep. God, you watch over us. You love us. You make us lie down in green grass and still waters. We worship you. What else? Yes, God, we worship you because you're sovereign. What else? Somebody yell it out. Yes. What else? A couple others. We worship the Lord because he is. What is he? The resurrection and the life. Can you just worship the Lord for a moment because he is the resurrection and the life? We worship you because you're our Father. You are in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Yes. Oh, God, you're gentle with those who go wayward, God. You have mercy and grace. You are just, God. You are the just judge. Oh, God, you are the reconciler, and you've given us the ministry of reconciliation to join in your work, Father. Thank you. We worship you. As you continue to worship the Lord in your heart for all that he is and all that he's done, I want us to go to our second prayer prompt. 
He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. Here's what I want to invite you to do. I want you to pair up with the people that are right next to you, either twos or threes, just twos or threes. And I invite you, you can stand up if you need to. I'm gonna invite you to pray for the Lord to send harvesters, laborers, specifically harvesters and contenders like we just heard. Ask the Lord to send harvesters and contenders into the cities that are on your hearts. Maybe it's an area of Kansas City, or maybe you feel like my new friends for last night who picked me up at the airport and you're from Texas. You want God to move in Texas. Together in those circles, just pray for God to send laborers and to send contenders to those cities or neighborhoods that you love and are on your hearts. Let's pray all across the room. Yes, God. Lord of the harvest, hear our cry. Send out laborers into every corner of Kansas City. Send out laborers to every corner of the Midwest, to the small towns and the big cities, to those rural communities and those bustling suburbs, God. Send harvesters. God, send contenders. Right, if one person's done all the prayer at this point, switch and let someone else pray for their area of their city. Yes, God. Well, Father, we've lifted up a number of neighborhoods and cities across North America, and we just pray together collectively that you would send harvesters there, that God, in the days, the months, the years to come, uh, quickly would you send people to fish for men, those hunters to find all of your people and bring them to you, God, just as you promised in the book of Jeremiah chapter 16. God, I pray that you would do it, and as we see you do it, we would rejoice in the work that you are doing, God. All right, friends, let's go back to our seats. Our final prayer prompts, very important. Verse three of Luke 10, we often stop praying after Luke two, or reading after Luke two. Verse three says this, go your way. Behold, see what I'm doing. I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Here's our third prayers for you and a private moment with the Lord. Just to simply say, Lord, send me. Send me. And if you know where the Lord might be sending you, but you're nervous about it, you're unsure about it, I'm gonna ask you to pray in boldness and say, God, would you confirm this call in my heart? Would you make this sure in my heart? 
I want to give everything in my life to that end. I want to accomplish the work you've sent me to do. So convince me. Pray a bold prayer this morning to say, Lord, here I am. I want to go my own way to follow you. God, would you send me? Pray for a moment for yourself. Father, across this room, we bow our knees, we bow our heads in holy submission, God. And we say, we beg you, God, we plead with you in desperation. Would you open our eyes to see what you're doing all around us? We know you're at work even when we don't see it. Father, would you open our eyes that we would not miss your mission because of our busyness in ministry? And God, would you open our eyes because we desperately want to step into your joy-filled, ongoing kingdom activity. Would you give us a clarity today like never before of what the next season in front of us is? And then God, give us the courage to say yes to you every day. No matter what else that means, we must say no to. For where else would we go? For you alone have the words of life. God, would you grow our affection for you more and more that the world around us would grow strangely dim, burn in our hearts a love for you that many waters could not quench, that we might serve you all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.